Guys, let's welcome Drew Caldwell. And we're so, so grateful to have you here. Thanks, Kyle. Uh, it is awesome to be here. Uh, and it's just a joy for Mary and I. Mary is going to be sharing some stories here in a bit as well, uh, because she's the one you really came to hear. Uh, the, uh, but it's just, it's awesome to be here. This is, this is a family reunion for us. Literally aren't clan, you know, it's the, and, uh, I've got family members in the house, Lauren and Jared. Hello, hello. Um, and it's, we also have so many years of friendship with so many of you. It is this beautiful picture. Like, I love what you shared, God, this beautiful picture of the church, this family in Jesus spanning the globe, imparting love and faith and encouragement to one another. Um, so it's the real deal. It's so, such a joy to be with you. Just, just like a very fast, uh, summary for those of you who, uh, you know, who aren't so familiar with Mary and I and what we've been up to. Uh, we moved, uh, with a team of our, of our close friends 12 years ago to the Middle East. We've, uh, we've been there. We have three daughters that you saw up there. I love that picture, by the way, that was up earlier because I feel like it looks like we're a family band and our oldest daughter is the lead singer. I don't know if you noticed that in the picture. Um, so I think that's where we're heading. I think that's where we're heading, actually. But um, so uh, so we you know we're, we've we've lived there. For, we were in Jordan for two years, Lebanon for the last ten years. And the thing that called us there, the vision that's carried us there, uh, is we believe God's promised first and foremost. Obviously, God loves all the nations. He's got a story for all the nations. But in a particular way, we feel called into His story for the Middle East, for the Arab world. Uh, obviously, a troubled region, but we have. We, we feel like God's given us a promise that this is a, this is a generation of awakening in the Middle East, uh, that God is laying new apostolic foundations like in the book of Acts, uh, and that we are just there to listen and follow and serve in any way we can to see leaders raised up and empowered and shepherded to see churches multiply and the knowledge of the glory of the Lord fill the earth. So that's, that's what we've been giving, uh, our lives to the last 12 years. And before I move any further, uh, I do want to honor some former teammates in our midst, Justin, Kathleen, LeBeau, who are now, for the last few years, have been a part of this Believer family. So this is also a fun connection. And, I, and so for five years, we journeyed together. Obviously, we have a long history before that. They're good friends of ours, lifelong friends. But uh, for five years, they journeyed with us in the Middle East. And I just want to take a moment uh, to honor who they are. Um, and the... Uh, man, I'm, just, I'm very emotional this morning, so brace yourself. Uh, but... I want to honor Kathleen. Kathleen is a doctor and spent five years of her life, stepped out of her PA practice to offer, uh, you know, to serve in clinics with refugees, to, you know, to look at snotty-nosed Syrian kids who honestly mostly are just having, like, you know, allergies or the common cold, but to love them and to put their mothers at ease, to pray over them, to bless them, and to do the same thing for our snotty-nosed kids. Uh, she patiently and carefully loved and served our team, our kids, and... Uh, the kids of Syrian refugee families for five years. It's a beautiful way she laid down her life to do that with excellence. Um, and just absolutely stunning. And, and Justin, uh, spent five years of his life sweating the streets of Beirut, uh, sharing his faith with every espresso guy who he knew by name in the constant hunt for the perfect cup of espresso and a person who was ready to follow Jesus. And, a story that just honors Justin and who he is. Uh, I visited Justin once post-op uh, in a hospital. He was just coming out of an operation. He was having to do the little breather thing to, like, 
get, he was breathless, you know, post-operation was having to like, like build his lung strength. The doctor just explained the breather tool. Two seconds later, a guy walks in, a Lebanese guy and says, I'm sorry, but right before you were being wheeled into surgery, you were saying something about Jesus. And I, I witnessed, I could have taken over, but I didn't because it was too beautiful. I witnessed Justin with the little breather thing in his head, breathlessly sharing truths about Jesus to this guy. Just laid his life down to share Jesus with anyone willing to listen. And I just want to commend them to you as deep wells, as a gift in your midst. Belatedly, they've been here two years, but uh, this is my shot. <laughs> uh, I just want to commend them to you as as gifts and honor them for their for the way they've lived their lives laid down before Jesus. So, come on. Um, so fast forward, I want to share specifically some things that God has spoken over the last two years, uh, of our, let me see, oh, I got it. There we go. Back there it is. Um, last two years of our lives in Lebanon. If you follow the news, it's been exciting to say the least and, and tragic on a much, uh, much more honest level. Um, but I'm a bit, there's a weightiness to this, um, and you'll see why as I share it, uh, both in terms of the content, but there's a weighty sense in which uh, when, when Chris and I did not coordinate, I haven't seen her in a few months, but it's great to see the West office here with us. Uh, but Chris's prophetic word, uh, as well as what Guy was sensing this morning, just honestly uh, gave me a weighty sense of what God wants to say to us this morning about uh, the, the idea of hope and about the way, the way we can hold this biblical story of hope in our hearts as we, we grapple with the reality of our pain. Two years ago, 2019, October 17th, uh, a revolution started in Lebanon. A couple blocks from our house, burning barricades. You know, you could see the smoke rising from our windows. Um, the, the streets were filled for weeks and weeks on end with Hundreds of, literally hundreds of thousands. Like it was a festival uh, of of people coming together. The Lebanese have been divided throughout their long history. People coming together, demanding a new direction for their country because the political warlords, literally warlords, who sort of control the apparatus of government, had just squandered everything, stolen the people, stolen billions and billions of dollars from their own people, and. Uh, and the Lebanese are bright and they are, you know, ingenious in so many ways, but they are just, they just suffer under this stifling, uh, broken system. And it, it was like the dam broke and these people that had been divided by their politics came together in this beautiful, I mean, it felt in many ways like the kingdom come dancing and singing and, uh, you know, waving flags and, and, and just this incredible, when we brought our kids down there, it was, it was a thing to be a part of. We were able to set up a prayer tent on the streets of the revolution and watch people come and write out their prayers, their hopes for their nation. And it was a moment in Lebanon of optimism. Things for the first time were looking up. There was the, there was a sense, obviously there's a lot of, you know, uncertainty in that type of environment, but there was a sense that things, uh, that things were getting better. Um, the, those warlords proved to be pretty clever themselves and, you know, managed to continue to sow d- division, to repress, uh, to manipulate these 
they, the, these joyful protests descended into, you know, intermittent fighting on the streets, uh, tear gas, vandalism. Uh, the, the whole of downtown looks like a war, it looks like an abandoned war zone. If you go there today, it was once this kind of thriving commercial center. Um, and, and so in the midst of all of this, this anger, this frustration, the, uh, Lebanon begins to enter what has become one of the world's third greatest economic crises since 1850. Uh, the, there was the banks, there was a run on the banks. All the banks were shut, turned into literal fortresses with, with, with metal walls instead of windows. Uh, depositors couldn't get their money. People's futures evaporated before their eyes. The currency lost 95% of its value. Um, and, and so people watched their salaries just become nothing. People who were making $2,000 a month were making $100 a month. And it impacted everything. Uh, and then a pandemic hit. You might have heard of it. The, uh, but in the midst of a place where no, where no one has jobs and people's jobs aren't paying them enough, uh, people were forced to go in their houses with no social safety nets because the government was broke. Um, and so what was optimism quickly became pessimism. Things looked like they were bad and getting worse. And then August 4th, 2020, uh, 2,780 tons of ammonium nitrate, hundreds of times the size of the Oklahoma City bombing, exploded in the port of Beirut, a few miles from our house. We, th we thought it was an earthquake. Uh, people were injured in our building, and we, we live miles away. The, the damage was catastrophic. And most Lebanese people will tell you part of them died that day. Uh, part of them was lost. Streets that they loved, places, our family's favorite restaurant was demolished, uh, not to be rebuilt. Um, just, just a, an unbelievable blow to a country that couldn't take anymore. And, uh, it was, it, it could only be described as despair. A few days after that, um, Mary and I, we, we were coming back to the States already for a family wedding. Uh, and so we, we were back and we spent five weeks with family and, and celebrating and it was very disorienting emotionally as you might imagine. And then it came time to come back. And Mary and I looked at each other and we just realized for the first time, we'd, we'd been through, we'd seen crazy stuff and Lebanon's not an easy place to live on a good day. But we had this honest moment. We didn't really want to go back. We were dragging our feet. And that's not usual for Mary and I. Uh, we, by nature, are, are persevering to a fault, upbeat to a fault, positive to a fault, and we had to wrestle with these honest emotions. I don't know what we're going, I don't, I don't, there's something in me that just doesn't want to get on the plane. Um, so we reached out to a counselor, a therapist who works with missionaries, uh, you know, with issues of ministry burnout and things like that. And, uh, he just asked us some questions. And as he asked questions, we got to untangle some stuff. And this is how it articulate what my, my side of it, what I came to discover, is that something died in us that day too. And what died in us, what was broken, was our optimism. We have been optimistic for Lebanon to the point that, you know, Lebanese people would get annoyed when we'd say how much we love Lebanon. They're like, Look around you. You love this place. And we'd be like, if the food is great. Um, you can get a lot of mileage off optimism. It's a great way to live in normal circumstances. I highly recommend it. The alternative is not so nice. 
Uh, but when you're in a crisis, optimism, unchecked, becomes denial. And the, there was this reality where Mary and I just had to admit that we had to lay our optimism down. But what do we take up in its place? Certainly not pessimism. If, if optimism can deny reality, pessimism is a denial of God. So what do you take up in its place? So imagine optimism, the classic analogy, right? You pick up a cup, right? Water's up to here. The optimist says, this cup is half full. We all know, right? It's like the most universal, you know, uh, for some reason it's a thing we all know. That's what optimism is. Pessimism, that same cup is. But what happens if you are literally holding an empty cup? Optimism is not so nice at that point, right? I think I see droplets in the cup, right? People will, will you'll just annoy people. Um, and you're likely to, to lie to yourself. But we as, as Christians have this other thing that we reach for, and it's called hope. Hope is not blithely looking at a, an empty glass and pretending it's half full. Hope can look at that empty glass and say, this is empty, and I'm not going to lie about it. This is tragic. This is hard. I can cry because my glass is empty. But this empty glass is not the end of the story. I know where the water comes from. And this glass shall be filled again. We it is, it is a posture of hope, the posture that the Bible gives us, that allows us to both hold the empty glass, call it what it is, and to say, it's not the end of the story. This cup shall be filled again. Our hope is found in a story. That story is the story of people. I mean, read it. It's called, it's called the Bible. This story is the story of people face to face with empty cups, crying and yelling and saying things we wouldn't feel comfortable saying about their empty cups, but knowing in their heart of hearts that they're a part of a bigger story and that their story belongs to God. Imagine, you know, most of, a lot of the scriptures that we have, a lot of the Psalms that we have, most of the prophecies from the prophets come from this period of time called the Babylonian exile. And it was a time after David and Solomon, the glory of the kingdom, when everything fell apart. And the story seemed to lose track. And their enemies came and dragged them off as slaves. And they're living in a foreign land. And it would have just felt so disorienting, disappointment. It was an empty cup. But if you were a kid in the Babylonian exile, your parents would teach you every day to pray the Psalms. To immerse your heart in the story. They would teach you that to observe these feasts. And you would remember... You would remember that we were once slaves and we thought we had no hope. And then God called, God saved the life of a baby, called him out by name. God parted the sea and he led us out on dry land. You would say we, we were, we were overwhelmed by enemies and God raised up Gideon. 
that we were lost in idolatry and God called David, a man after his own heart, to bring the temple into Jerusalem to establish praise among his people. They would have told the stories of their fathers. We are sons of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob over and over again. And it would have been the background music of their lives. It would have been this river flowing in their heart and it would give them the freedom to call empty cups what they are because they lived in a deeper story. Do we? Do we? So, um, I love, I just want to share a few snapshots of, as we did, as we found that place, okay, we're going to let go of optimism. We're not going to tell people we love the food anymore. We do, but that's not enough to justify living there, right? So, we're going to have to just be honest about the hope that we have. And we got back on that plane, and I cannot, to, to, I mean, those of you who follow the news know that it's, today is worse than ever. This is, we are at the lowest point in all of this journey of Lebanon right now as I'm saying this message. So if you were to ask me what's, what's, how, what's the solution, I cannot tell you. And don't believe anyone who thinks they can, honestly. But I have no answer for what's going to happen tomorrow or a week from now. But I can bear witness to the God of hope transforming people's lives in the midst of it. I can bear witness to the story, that story that we've been grafted into that goes back to Abraham, the story of God's faithfulness overcoming human unfaithfulness. And I can point to it at work being written anew in the lives of my Arab friends in the midst of this crisis. And that is what, why, that is why we continue to live there. So I want to just highlight a few of these moments in the last two years. Um, I'm actually going to skip this because, you know, let's just jump to the stories. You guys know the Bible verses. Um, no, I'm kidding. Read the Bible. That's the whole point of the message, but just keep it moving. So um, this handsome young man between Mary and I's name is Muhammad. And uh, I have known Muhammad. I was, Muhammad was my student ten, literally 10 years ago. I taught him. I'm a teacher in Lebanon uh, through a dramatic series of events that I actually shared about two years ago. Uh, Muhammad came to faith and and then fell away. After I told those encouraging stories, I went back to Lebanon, and he had fallen away from the faith. So you didn't get that, that update. But um, So a year, fast forward a year. The blast has happened. All, we work with a lot of young people. Their lives are upended. Their futures are evaporating. And our friends, Chris and Craig, were coming to visit us. This was last October. And Mary had the brilliant idea, like, man, we don't even know what to say to people. Let's just ask Chris and Craig to prophesy over some of these young people. And it was a beautiful night. And, I, and one moment I will never forget um, is that Muhammad came over early to, to connect with Craig a little bit. And we're sitting out on our balcony. And after a bit, Craig just says, hey, can I pray a father's blessing over you? And, you know, you guys know Craig. It's like getting the voice of God to bless you. So, so Craig comes and he puts his hand on Muhammad and he's, he's, he says, Muhammad, I bless you. Mm, mm. Um, so, <laughs> the, um, so he just prays this father's blessing. I won't draw, I mean, I won't draw, you get the idea. And he sits back down and Muhammad just sits there and this moment, I'll never forget it. It did something to me, like, fundamentally, in my view of, of God and people and what we actually need in life. And here's a guy. He's living in a crisis. His future's up in the air. 
He gets a father's blessing prayed over him. He looks up and he goes, I just feel... And then he starts to weep like a little kid. Like Mary thought one of our girls fell off the bunk bed. It was so intense. And it's like there's this thing where in the midst of the chaos of our life, what we actually need to know is that we are held and seen and loved. That we are not cast aside or overlooked or forgotten. That what crisis does is it uproots our normal senses of security and we begin, if we don't find the Father's blessing in the middle of that crisis, we will assume that we have just been pitched into the abyss, that we are just on our own surviving. But that moment did something to him. We went on to have this most incredible night of Chris and Craig praying over these young people. Every single one of them wept, and every single person watching wept as the prayers were happening because it was just these precious, intimate words spoken to, to these young people. Another, Both Muhammad and another girl actually gave their lives back to Jesus. They had kind of fallen away from the faith as a result of the words that were spoken over them. And it just made me realize that in crisis, we need to hear God call us by name. We need to hear God call us by name. There's this incredible, absolutely rich story. I think it's in Genesis 29, but it's the story of Jacob. Jacob is in this enormous personal crisis. Uh, I don't know if you've ever been in this situation, but his brother was plotting to kill him. So he runs away from his family. He, he is out on his, he leaves his father's house. He is in the wilderness alone and he is, and he knows that his brother wants to kill him. So this is a crisis. This was, I would say, is a a disorienting moment in one's life. And it's here that for the first time in Jacob's story, God speaks to him. In his crisis, God speaks to Jacob. He reveals himself. He says, I'm the God of your fathers, Abraham and Isaac. Jacob would have known that already. And then he says, and I make my covenant with you, Jacob. Jacob's done nothing of merit at this point in the story, by the way. But God calls him by name. He says, I will make a great nation of you. And I will not relent until I have fulfilled all I've promised for you. And Jacob wakes up and he says, surely God was in this place. And I did not know it. I think there's something about crisis where we need to hear God call us by name so that we can say, oh, God's here with me. God's in this place, and I didn't know it. God is in the upheaval. He's right there with me. He sees me, and he's got a story for me. He's not going to give up on me. And so there's something so, so powerful about that. Mary, you want to come up? Here she is, folks. The one and only. One clarification, Kathleen's a PA. I know she'd want me to say that. <laughs> but we all call her doctor in Lebanon. Okay. <laughs> um, yeah, so like Drew said, right after we got back from the family wedding, um, we actually took like the first five days to pray and, and actually fast and ask the Father, how can we respond to this crisis of the explosion. And um, so the Lord directed um, me and my friend Zainab. Yeah, here we go. Um, we prayed. We did some prayer, just like asking the Father, and directed us to this neighborhood that was right next to the port. It's mostly Muslim. Um, and uh, we just started walking door to door and asking what kind of help had been done. And um, 
And really just kind of being the presence of Jesus, like listening to the stories, what happened, where were you, crying with them, praying over them, and just getting an inventory of um, what is their greatest need. So a lot of you guys responded and gave money, and we were able to help um, and actually help a lot, 80, like 80 families and 20 businesses or 90 families. It was, it was really amazing. But in this process, the whole reason we're doing this is to bring Jesus into this moment. Like, how can we like both grieve with them and be with them, but also like, how can we pray over them, you know, and or, or hear what their needs are. And so as we helped with the, um, we helped them with either like a, a kitchen appliance they had lost because they lost all their appliances with the, the blast. Um, one of the things that every single person was saying is they needed help, um, like uh, psychologically, that they were having, so many of them were having post-traumatic stress symptoms. They were, their kids were having nightmares. That was the huge, huge felt need. And there actually were some organizations doing stuff, but that was the thing that they kept saying. So, um, so I was able to gather a team of Lebanese young people, and um, we implemented this Bible studies trauma healing program. And we invited the women that we had helped and actually anyone in the neighborhood and um and all of my years of doing stuff with syrians normally when you invite um syrians to something especially if you're from america they like 50 of them come and then after a couple times and there's no actual material help then it's down to three you know and so i was kind of expecting for the response to be really big and then as i said over and over again in the and the session's like, there's nothing else happening. There's no more help. There's no more money. There's nothing. It's just for trauma healing. I really expected the numbers to go from 40, 45 to like three, four, five. Well, so essentially 30 single time I meet, every time I walk in, can I put my name down? I really, really want to get a trauma healing session. I'm like, I know, but there is no help. I mean, I say this every time someone asks, can I, can I write my name down? There is no help. There is no actual monetary help. They're like, I know. I just want the trauma healing. So I'm like, okay. So um, we take this group of women through this really incredible um, kind of integrated trauma healing Bible study. And of the 30 that go through it, there's four that we can identify that are actually really getting transformed by it. Like it's transforming their lives. And they're like, they want to give it away. So we invite them and the next group of women um, to lead. Again, the next group of women, I'm thinking, I think they think they want this, but I'm not sure. So again, I'm just, because of my experience, I'm like, I've got tons of names. I'll, I'll text them, invite them, but I don't know that they'll actually show up. So the first session of the second wave, 40 women show up. <laughs> and, and this group of women have heard from all of these previous women about their experience. So they're all like, no, 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 we really want this. And so we've invited um, these four women that we've kind of identified, and one of them is name is Fatima. This is Fatima, and Fatima went through um, the this trauma healing process and just keeps saying, "This is changing me." She was really, really quiet. She was really shut down. She had a hard time talking. She'd start crying really hard. Her her family was so traumatized by the blast. She lost her business. She lost so much in her home. She's fled from Syria. She's a Syrian refugee, and she'd seen horrible things in Syria. So she was like, if I was going to look at this group of 30 women and there were some really dynamic leaders, I would not have chosen Fatima. Like, I would have overlooked her. But as the process is happening, I'm watching her just get transformed. So, um, and she, she comes with these different testimonies and each week and this happened and this, and then she's sharing with her neighbors. 
So, um, so after we, they went through this initial set of trauma, we invited them. They still want more. So we invite them into a forgiveness. Some of them wanted a forgiveness tract, and some of them wanted more stories about Jesus. So she goes into this forgiveness track and is helping me lead. So it's kind of a simultaneous thing. And um, so one of the things that we had this moment where we're sharing some of our deepest pain, and Fatima shares a story where um, – her cousin, who was her best friend, which I can relate because I got a bestie cousin here, who's her best friend. They were did everything together, um, were in each other's weddings um, during the war, at the begin, or in the middle of the war, beginning of the war. Uh, her, her cousin had moved to Damascus. Fatima's from Idlib in Syria. And her cousin comes back to visit everyone. And they're all so excited to see the cousin. And the cousin's with them for three or four weeks, goes back to Damascus. Thirteen days later, any of the family members who were against uh, the government were bombed and killed, including her father. So her cousin, who she was really close with, um, was actually a spy and had turned in her family members. And then her father was killed because of this. And so in this moment, in this trauma, trauma debrief moment, she said, I could never forgive her. Like, I don't care what happens. I could never forgive her. And so as she's saying this, I'm like, yeah, that is a real, it is a journey that's really hard and just validating how hard it is. I'm like, I, you know, and, um, so, and, and we had the story that we were basing our, one of the stories we're basing out of is the prodigal son story of Joseph. So the next week we have, we come together and we're talking and Fatima says in this group, there's eight other Syrians. She says, who had just heard her say that the week before, she says, I, I don't know how to explain this. Something happened to me this week. It's like the spirit of God came over me. And that cousin that I couldn't forgive, I found her number. She's, she's gotten five numbers over the years. She still, this cousin still lives in Damascus and has tried to reach me. And every time she does, I block her number. But I found her number and I called her. And I told her, hey, you know what happened? We can forget about it. And my cousin, she texted that. And my cousin immediately called me and said, wait, wait, wait. Are you saying you forgive me? And Fatima said, yes, I forgive you. And the cousin just starts weeping and says, I can't, but I can't tell you what this means to me. I can't tell you how much I've longed for this. I can't tell you how much I regret what I've done. I feel so guilty. How can you forgive me? And Fatima said, actually, I've been listening to, I've been reading from the Bible and I've been listening to these stories and actually I'm learning how to forgive people. And it's, and actually I'm not doing it because you deserve it. I'm doing it because of that God has given it to me and enabled me to do that. Um, and so as she shares this in the room of the Syrians, it was like a total Holy Spirit. And so these women all start saying, I need to talk to this cousin or I need to talk to this person. And so it was just this moment of like, oh my goodness. Um, and so Fatima continues to like, she actually kind of came up to me and said, I know I'm helping you lead these women, but actually can I lead my neighbors through this trauma healing? I think it could really be helpful for them. Absolutely. So she led her neighbors through this forgiveness set, and she could already tell me which ones that were getting transformed. And she is just actually just watching her. Um, she told me, I feel like I was asleep, and God opened my eyes. I feel like I was in all darkness, and all of a sudden I'm new. And I can't express how different my heart feels right now. So. Amen. One of the things that, or one of the, the first lesson they start when they start with the trauma healing groups is actually this story of Joseph. And at the end of Joseph's story, and this is sort of, you, you would think that what Mary's describing wouldn't work, like Muslim women doing Bible studies to heal their trauma. It's not like the typical, the UN wouldn't recommend it. Um, and 
but these women say, what we do in this group, we've gone to the UN seminars of trauma awareness and it does nothing for us. But these stories are changing us. And the thing about this story of Joseph is at the end of it, Joseph's declaration to his brothers who betrayed him, threw him in a well, caused him to be a, first a slave, then a prisoner, right? His, his declaration then was not, you've ruined my life. His declaration was, what you meant for evil, God has worked to good. For me, what is it, Mary, you use it? Not just for me, but to save others around me. So this is, they're living into this story of hope. And Fatima can now say what, what the failure of officials did that caused evil for me. God is working for good. Not just for me, but for the women around me. She has become a voice of healing in her community as her broken story has been absorbed in the story of God. Um, a similar one. This is my friend Jamal. Jamal fought for the Syrian army for eight years during the Civil War. Jamal is a Palestinian refugee who grew up in Syria. So this isn't even his country, and he doesn't have any rights or privileges as a Syrian citizen. But when the war came, they rounded up Palestinians like him and made them fight for the army. So he fought for someone else's state for eight years. He has witnessed atrocities and has participated in atrocities. After eight years, I mean, I don't know, I can't imagine what the state of his inner world was. He said, forget it, I can't do this anymore, and he deserts. They capture him. They put him in a military prison where he's tortured for three months underground in a small cell. They release him, say, go back to your post. He escapes again. This time, he walks over the mountains in the winter, in the snow, to Lebanon, um, where he tries to find a job so that he can save enough money to pay for his wife and three young daughters to move to join him in Lebanon. In this state, this state of just utter, I mean, I, again, I can't even imagine. I can't begin to imagine um, the anger, the pain, the disappointment, the, de- the depression, the, all, of, all of it. Jamal is sitting in his tent or wherever he was living at the time in Lebanon in a refugee dwelling, and he sees an ad on Facebook about Jesus. And believe it or not, there are people out there that do, that do click yes, learn more when they see an ad that says, do you want to learn more about Jesus? Um, and so he begins through a ministry that some friends of mine run. He begins reading stories from the Bible. And as he reads these stories, these stories about Jesus, he says something in him began to soften Something in him began to melt. He began to feel a tenderness, a goodness, a hope. Uh, he starts reaching back out to this Facebook page saying, hey, I, w- I want to follow Jesus. I want to I be one of these disciples I'm reading about. And they say, okay, we'll, we'll connect you with a neighbor that can help you. And I happen to live a mile from his house. So I'm sitting across the, the and, and you have to understand that, you know, I've lived in the Middle East a long time, and this is not what most of my interactions are like. Uh, this, this was, this was stunning to me. I'm sitting in a cafe across from this guy telling him about his years in the Civil War. Uh, and I said, Jamal, I can't, I can't even imagine what you've been through. And he says, well, to be honest, my whole life has been pain. But with Jesus, I found a beauty in my pain. 
my pain has a purpose. This, I just want to zoom in on this moment that Chris was praying out of, uh, was feeling from the Lord this morning. But this moment where the disciples, they left everything to follow Jesus. They thought that this was the thing that they were waiting for, the kingdom come. And Jesus disappointed them. Jesus disappointed them. He led them to a dead end. They were humiliated. They were scattered. They went into hiding. They were disappointed about where this road took them. They were holding an empty cup. And then it says that evening, the disciples were in a meeting behind locked doors because they were afraid of the Jewish leaders. Suddenly Jesus was standing there among them. Peace be with you, he said. As he spoke, he showed them the wounds in his hands and his side. They were filled with joy when they saw the Lord. Do you think they imagined those wounds would ever be a source of joy? Could their imaginations even weave it together in a way where those wounds would be the source of joy? Isn't it beautiful that when Jesus, the risen Jesus shows up, those wounds aren't redacted from the story? They make him who he is. They make the story what it is. And they have been taken up into the story of God and made beautiful. And suddenly, suddenly, the story is a different story altogether. Suddenly, the cup is full again. How? They never could have imagined how. But miraculously, they are now holding a full cup. And then, he says, as the Father has sent me, so I send you. He breathed on them and said, receive the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit given to recently disappointed people who suddenly find their hopes renewed. Sent out into a confused and lost world to bring a story of meaning and beauty, of healing and redemption by the power of God living within them. This is Jamal's baptism. In May, uh, Jamal wanted to get baptized. Um, and in the presence of other Muslim background believers who were all shouting, Hallelujah and praise Jesus. Jamal went into the waters and came up again, baptized into a new story. That old man that committed atrocities in Syria died in the water, and a new man came up who is now a part of an eternal story and an eternal family. Jamal is sharing this story everywhere he goes. He sent a, after this, this, a day after this, he goes out to his, uh, he starts getting on WhatsApp and telling all his relatives back in Syria that he's a follower of Jesus. And his brother-in-law reaches out to him and says, are you serious? We can become Christians? I always wanted to, but I didn't think it was for people like us. <laughs> and he has, he, he's gathered men in his refugee camp, that, a refugee camp, by the way, that's run by Islamic militants. And they, he, he shares Jesus with them and gathers with them. And I said, man, Jamal, aren't you afraid? And he goes, I've been tortured for stupider things than this. <laughs> the, I think I just want to close with this, uh, with this exhortation. Road, the, the story of the road to Emmaus in Luke, a similar resurrection story to the one I just shared 
You have these two disciples, and it's a beautiful story. Just read it, meditate on it. You, it never gets old. It's amazing. These two disciples who are literally wandering in the countryside depressed. They're disoriented. They're disappointed with Jesus. And they're wandering the countryside, and Jesus starts to walk with them. And he begins to ask them, what's, what's, why, why so glum? And they say, are you the only one that doesn't know? We had put our hope in this man. It's not working out like we planned. And then Jesus sits down with them and he says, Oh, are you so hard of heart? Don't you know the story of God? Are you so hard of heart? Don't you know the story that you're a part of? Don't you know it? Don't you know its rhythm? Don't you know how it moves? And he begins to recount the story from the beginning. And he, sa- and, and he says, didn't you know it's in the story from the beginning that the Messiah would have to suffer and then enter his glory? And then he breaks bread and disappears. And they say this, were not our hearts burning within us when he told us the story? I think that's my new diagnostic. Is my heart burning within me? How's your heart this morning? Is your heart burning within you because you're a part of a story that makes the human heart burn? And we can grieve and hold the empty cup and still feel that story carrying us. That's what it's meant for. And so the the hope then, right, is that as we live into this story, as we find practices, I mean, there's so many things I could go from here, but I'm going to stop. As we find practices as individuals, as communities that root us in this story, as we allow it to shape us, right? We don't have to ride the waves of the, the anxiety of our culture. We don't have to just, you know, receive our story from the news. We can live rooted in a story that makes our hearts burn, and you were made to burn. God fashioned your heart to burn for his story. So let's, let's not settle for anything less than that. Um, I'm going to pray over us. Oh, Lord. Oh, Lord. We just we thank you. We thank you. You call us by name. That each person in this room is called by name like Jacob was. To be a part of this story. You have a place for all of us in this story. You are weaving our lives into your story. And we, I just pray over Believer's Church, I pray over this family, um, that their hearts would burn, that they would have the space within your story to acknowledge and grieve their empty cups, and they would have the strength of your presence to root them and carry them in the story of hope. In Jesus' name, amen. I want to notice, I want to notice what just happened to us. Think about this for a second. Hope that God is communicating in our hearts is coming to us through a woman whose father was basically murdered by her own cousin, left 
if anyone could have imagined themselves forgotten by God, it's Fatima. And, and a man, Jamal, who committed atrocities, was treated so unfairly, left in a cell for three months. And God, he never knew that God was going to raise him up and say there's going to be several hundred people in Tulsa, Oklahoma, that God is going to birth hope out of your story and deliver it to them. This is the story God has invited us into. So I, I want to speak to, I, I just, man, the Lord is so on this that the story's not over because Jesus is raised from the dead. Not because we're smart, not because we're just doing anything right. It's just because Jesus has been raised from the dead. And he offers that out of his mercy to each one of us. I want to finish today by praying over Drew and Mary. And would you come up, Mary? I don't know how, why it just worked out this way. We have a missionary every Sunday in the month of August. You may have noticed this. But we're going to stand together and we're going to pray like we've done with some of our missionaries. We're going to pray out loud for these guys. Go ahead and stand up. And the reason we want to do this is um, I know this has been a deeply trying time for these guys. And have you ever noticed, maybe you've lived with Jesus long enough to know that there's times when you share stuff out of your total brokenness and despair, you're shocked that it helps other people. And you're shocked that things are going well. I, I found that to be a pattern that when I'm the emptiest and the weakest, that's where God's delivering gold to other people. And so what I want to uh, first is we're going to pray for these guys. We're going to pray for them out loud, loudly, because I want it to be a memory for you um, that when you're in a conversation, you know, on the street and it looks like this is just why are we here? You can remember this as a witness to the yes of the Lord, to not just you guys, but what he's doing. This, you said it, the story he's writing in Lebanon. Okay, so guys, again, let's just let's just be loud. If all you can say is Jesus, say Jesus over and over again. But I really would challenge you to pray out loud just to bless these guys to know this is going on. There are people praying for us and we can do it one more day because we're not alone in this. So let's pray. Come on.
Oh, come on. Guys, that was beautiful. We're going to finish. I, I've done some work in South Korea, and it's a cool thing they do in South Korea at the church. The church would literally sing over people. And so Sam's going to lead us in a song of blessing. You that Lord bless you, keep you, make us faith. We're just going to pray. Let's just sing this loudly over these guys, and that's how we'll end today. Blessing over you guys. the family. We're so grateful you guys. Tomorrow night, 7 o'clock here. If you want to hear more about these guys and support them, show up here tomorrow night. We love you. Have a wonderful week.